Good morning, church. Good to be together with you again on this Sunday, Lord's Day. I'm excited to get together again into God's Word. In fact, if you have one, why don't you go on ahead and turn together with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And as you're turning there, perhaps it's been your experience as well at some point in time where perhaps um, on a personal level, you had a chance to meet somebody who just happened to be in their element. Um, whether that was in the area of sports, of a Tiger Wood fashion, or a Michael Jordan on a court, or maybe even in the area of arts and music, like a Yo-Yo Ma behind the cello, or perhaps in some other arena that you could imagine. And even if you didn't know someone like this on a personal level, maybe you saw it from a distance and you witnessed it and you couldn't help but say to yourself, that's a person in their element. And we have words that we also use along with that. And we say, you know what? You were made for this. You were made for this. The reason why I bring this up, it has everything to do with our message for, for today. Because whether or not you can honestly say this about yourself, when we go back to when God first created not only creation itself, but you and me in his image and in his likeness, he created us for his glory. He created us for a purpose. And when he looked upon his cre creation, including you and me, he didn't just say good. He said it was very good. In other words, you were made for this is what God would have said to his people absent of, of sin. And what exactly is that? We were made for worship. We were made for worship. I know when we look at our lives as we presently speak and we look all around us, we see a whole lot of wrong worship that got us into a whole lot of trouble. But the point is this, it's not only that worship gets us into trouble, it's also the very thing that gets us out of trouble. And even though the way in which God first created us for his glory, the chief end, the ultimate purpose for you and me was to, was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, even though all of that was, was lost, God's been on a rescue mission. You see, when God first started, he started with the good creation, where everything was working and functioning as he, creator, intended. But all of that changed as a result of your sin and my sin and our decision to go in a whole nother direction contrary to God's goodwill and purpose for our lives. Well, God in his kindness and in his mercy ever since then has been on this rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And as a result of that, he sent his son, Jesus, in the person of the Jesus of Nazareth that we know. And when Jesus came, he came to fulfill that mission of God's. You see, worship it begins with a knowledge on your part and on my part that God is the one who sought us out first and foremost. It wasn't you and I who first sought God out. No one in fact, is seeking God out to begin with at all. And if anyone is, it's only because God first sought us out. We're looking at a text today, beautiful text known by many of God's people, where we see God on this same rescue mission, where we see Jesus fulfilling this purpose of God's. The text begins in verse one, if you have your Bibles opened up, where we're told now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, 
but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman, verse 7, from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it exactly that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Title, you are made for this. The text opens up in, a, in an interesting fashion. There's a, there's a bit of a shift that took place between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. I think there's a relationship that needs to be drawn between the two chapters. For those of you who perhaps may be familiar, you can follow along. What's interesting that is that in John chapter 3, Jesus en- encounters and meets with who? Nicodemus, man, at night. In John chapter 4, he's now about to, and right now encounters this woman of Samaria. Both of them are encounters with an individual on a private level. In the case of John chapter 3, it's, it's a man, but not just a man, he's a moral man. He's an infinite, influential man. He's a prominent man. Um, he's, he's someone who is of some standing in society, and he comes to him by, by night. In the case of John chapter 4, it's not a man, it's a woman. And she's not an influential woman. She's not a prominent woman. She's actually a woman of ill repute. And she comes to him and encounters Jesus by day. In John chapter 3, it's, it's a conversation that takes place. But in John chapter 4, it's the longest discourse that we have recorded at all that Jesus has with another person, including his own disciples. And here we have this situation before Jesus ever gets to John, in John chapter 4, to Samaria, he's coming from where? That's right, from Judea, which is from the south, if you will. Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and right here in the middle is Samaria. Well, it was the custom of Jews to not travel through Samaria. And so instead, what was their, what was their habit was, Um, If they needed to get north, if they needed to get to Galilee, rather than cutting through Samaria, they would find themselves going around Samaria to Galilee. This was about, scholars tell us, a six days journey to make that trip. If they cut through Samaria, it would have been a three days journey, which tells you the kind of animosity and hostility that existed between these two racial ethnic and also religious groups, that this animosity was such that Jews were prepared to add more days to their trip just to avoid encountering Samaritans. And now, Samaritans were a bit of a hybrid group. We learn a little bit about them when we go back to the Old Testament. Um, it was on the heels of the Jews in northern Israel after a battle and a war 
having been concluded that there was um, a, a foreign group that had come in, mingled together with the Jews that were present, married, bore children, and as a result of that, subsequently, there was another hybrid racial group that emerged. But they weren't just different in terms of perhaps their makeup between being Jews and being Samaritans. They're also different in, different in terms of what they believed. And so Samaritans were a group that didn't necessarily believe all that God's word has to teach. There were some books of the Old Testament that they accepted, but everything else they pretty much chucked. And as a result of that, they came up with their own system of, of belief that kind of picked and chose what they wanted from the faith. And voila, you got this cult. You got this cult. And ever since that point, the Jews have never been inclined to want to have any sort of hospitable relations with this group. And so you could imagine how on edge anyone would be who's a Jew encountering, witnessing, learning of Jesus, having anything to do with Samaritans, let alone a Samaritan woman. But Jesus is not politically driven. Jesus is not racially driven. Jesus is on mission. Jesus is missionally driven. As far as he's concerned, he's come to this earth to fulfill his father's purpose, not to get caught up in a lot of the mess and a lot of the confusion that surrounds his society. And I think that's important for all of us as we are seeking to follow Jesus, to identify with Jesus, and to be about what Jesus would be about were he here. We cannot be politically driven. We cannot be racially driven. We need to be of a third culture, a kingdom culture. And Jesus is modeling for us right before our very eyes this encounter with this Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman is a woman who's an outcast. She's a woman of ill repute. She's a woman who's dejected and rejected. She's a woman who no one wants to have anything to do with. And here, Jesus shows up in Samaria, wearied by his travels, which communicates to us a bit of the humanity of Jesus and not just the deity of Jesus. So even though John's gospel is intended to communicate the deity of Jesus, he takes it. He makes it a point at this instance to show us, to give us a little insight into Jesus's humanity. It's not God who gets tired. It's the man, Jesus, who gets tired. He's wearied, as it says in verse six, and he sits down beside the well. And it's about the sixth hour, which tells us it's about noonday. It's not evening. It's not early morning. It's about noonday. And who enters in as the next character? Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus has a word to say for her. So you got to imagine this. Jesus knew who he was going to encounter. So even though he's a man, he's God. And Jesus purposely set up this appointment that may be a surprise to her, but not a surprise to him. And here he uses this, this well that has some history, not only for the Samaritans, but also for the Jews. He uses this meeting point, kind of like how God uses us in the lives of people who need to know him and the places where we meet as a meeting point. It's not about the meeting point. It's about what happens at the meeting point. And God uses water of all things to be able to communicate a huge eternal life lesson 
You'll see this all throughout the scriptures. This is, this is Jesus. He'll take bread to communicate something even more important than bread. He'll take a rock or a farmer and seed. He'll take a, a wedding. He'll take water to be able to c- communicate something far more significant for you and for me than the thing in and of itself. And here we have a situation with, with water and a well. What's so significant about that? Well, I know for you and for me, we take it for granted because we have water all around us, but you, you, you've got to imagine being in a desert where you're hard-pressed to even have access to it. Cities, if they're going to be built and formed at all, they need to first find out where's the water source. And as soon as you could find the water source, whether that's a well or a, 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 a good flowing stream, a river, from there, you start building towns and communities, and people can start having families and households and children and neighborhoods. But unless you have a water source, there's no point because without water, there's no hope. Without water, you're in a grave situation. This is a life or death thing for people of, of this time and maybe even for many parts of our world as we presently, as we presently speak. But Jesus doesn't want to just talk about H2O with this woman. Jesus has bigger things up his sleeve than to talk about water. And we're about to see exactly what that is. So he, she comes to, to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So now we know he's alone. They've, we don't know when they're going to return. The Samaritan woman, verse 9, said to him, so she recognizes that he's not only a man, but that he's not a Samaritan. He's a Jew. Okay, that's going to be important in a second here. How is it? She's got a question for him. Before I start drawing water for you, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. Jesus knows what he's doing. This is a beautiful picture. Here we have a situation where the woman recognizes, wait a second. I mean, this is almost akin to, even in our own country, in its history, there was a time where we had something akin to Jim Crow and segregation, where different groups, depending on the color of your skin, had to live and move and function and operate in certain parts of town, and they weren't to intermingle with with other groups, whether that had to do with school or where you drove or where you ate, you name it, even church. And so put yourself in that situation. This would be as if an individual from one of those groups crossed the railroad tracks, crossed town during that Jim Crow segregation period and began to mingle or bring the gospel or share their faith with another person. And, and they're seen doing so by that person. What, what are you doing of that color skin on this part of town? We shouldn't be caught with each other. So they're putting their life on the line. They're putting their life at risk for the sake of a greater good. That's what Jesus is doing. I want you to feel the tension that exists. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. Jesus knew the risk that came by not bypassing Samaria and getting to Galilee, but actually walking right through Samaria and encountering a Samaritan, but not just a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman 
So here we have a Jew and a Samaritan, a Jew and a Gentile, a pious man and an illicit woman, a woman of ill repute. Here we have a man and a woman. And you have all of those three differences that exist between them converging in this one moment, in this one instance. And Jesus walks right into it. And what does he say? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. See, Jesus is trying to say, look, I, my, I am on some, I'm on a whole nother plane. And if you could only understand, if you could only imagine, if you only knew who it was that was sitting across this well from you, him, you would not only be wanting to offer me water, you would be wanting to get the water that I have to offer. You see, in the case of this woman, all she could offer him is what? Physical water. But in Jesus' case, what he's prepared to offer her is what? Living water. Living water. The living water we're talking about is, is eternal life. It's the Holy Spirit. It's something that is both internal and eternal. It's something that transcends the here and now, that you can enjoy now, but you get to take with you forever. You see, that's the living water that Jesus is beginning to tease out and expose her, her to. Verse 11, the woman said to him, okay, sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, number one. The well is deep, number two. And where exactly do you get this living water? So she, she's still thinking on earthly terms, but Jesus does not mind, does he, starting there. And that's what he does often with our lives, spiritually speaking. And I think there's a lesson there for us is we may need to start where, where people are comfortable, where people are familiar, but not in there. We're about to see right now from the master himself, Jesus start with this woman here, but begin gradually in his grace and in his kindness, start taking her to where he wants to. And he begins to. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, Jesus is getting in closer and closer. It's almost like the cameraman who, who starts out with the panoramic view, but begins to zoom in more and more. He's going after her heart. He's dealing with the issues that ultimately matter. He says, look, if you didn't get it the first time, let me see if I can get a little bit closer for you. You see, Jesus loves this woman. He's here to encounter this woman, not to exploit this woman, not to take advantage of this woman, not to use this woman, but to serve this woman at the soul level. You see, when Jesus talks about the water that she can offer him from this well versus this living water, he's trying to point out something to this woman that I believe God is trying to point out to you and to me, and that's this, that you and I were made with a body and with a soul. That's important. That we have both a body and a soul. That our bodies benefit us here and now, but 
There's a soul that outlives this body that even when I die, my soul continues. And even when Jesus returns or I go ultimately to be with him, this soul ultimately reunites with this body that at one point died. But our soul is eternal. You see, God made our soul. God created our soul. God sustains our soul. And you and I were created by God to be stewards of our soul. We can have a hydrated body, but a dehydrated soul. You and I could have a healthy body, but an unhealthy soul. That more importantly than investing in our body, you and I need to be investing in our soul. This woman has only, be, be, has only been giving attention to her body. She hasn't been giving attention to her soul. And Jesus wants to seize this opportunity and focus in upon her soul. He wants her to, for a moment, for one instance in her life, take our eyes off of purely earthly things and focus on things that are more eternal. And so he does. Hence, he draws in this concept of living water. Even though it may be strange for her, she's asking, where do you get this? <laughs> How can I buy this? How, how can I have this for myself? He's beginning to point out to her how important it is that you and I understand that we're supposed to be giving priority and attention to our soul, to our soul. And here we see Jesus making mention of that. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's important right there. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be, he said, you're here at noon hour. You're going to be back here at the evening or at noon hour again. You're here now, I'll see you again tomorrow. But the water that I give, the living water that I offer, is the kind of water, once you have it, you're never going to be thirsty again. You see, Jesus is not even pointing to the water that comes from this well. He's hoping that this woman soon, very soon, is going to understand that there's a different thirst. That there's a different thirst. Even if it's not water at a well, you and I have things that we look to to meet needs in the same way we look to water for. And God is saying that if it's not him, then it's a poor substitute. If it's not God meeting that need, it's something else that's meeting that need in its place. And the problem is when we choose to opt for something else, to meet our needs in ways that only God can, we're only thirsty again. Jesus knows this woman. He knows more about this woman than someone who comes at noon hour to collect water. And we're about to see a little bit of her story that is about to unfold right before our very eyes. Here she says in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, I need this water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She recognizes if this is true, if this is something that I can have and this isn't a pipe dream, please, how do I get in on this? Already she's, she's beginning to have some sense in which is he talking about something more than just water from a well? And if so, and if it could address my needs, because I'm broken, and I know that I'm broken, 
I'm a mess. I'm in trouble. And if he's hinting at the fact that he can do something about what is a problem that I haven't been able to address, I'm all in. I'm all in. She recognizes that Jesus is offering something that she can't get anywhere else. That's what the gospel is. But part of being able to apprehend and appreciate the good news of the gospel is recognizing the bad news. One of the ways that you and I are able to really enjoy God's grace and experience his love and his kindness and his mercy is by first recognizing and coming to grips with who we are in and of ourselves. You see, until I see myself for a moment apart from Jesus, I'm never going to really value and appreciate who I am with Jesus. That's why I believe Jesus wasn't too quick to say, all right, here's the living water. Just before we get there, I'm glad you've asked. Before we get to the living water, I got a question for you. (laughs) Verse 16, the story continues. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. (laughs) How do we get from, uh, sir, give me this water to go, (laughs) call your husband. Now we got a counseling session. Jesus says, first, we need to have a counseling session. He could be saying, you know what? I want to make sure your husband gets in on this as well. Could be. But I think what he's trying to really get at is, wait a second, there's a life of yours that you don't know that I know of that's inconsistent with the life that I have for you. And before you could ever get in on this living water, before you could ever get in on this life that you can't get from anyone else but myself, we need to first do something about the life of yours where I have nothing to do with. I think that's what God does with us a lot of times where we may hear something about God or how good he is. We may experience and witness him in our lives in one way or another. Or maybe we hear the good news of the gospel, but we also recognize this means um, I can't continue to live the way I've been living. This may mean I, I, I may need to ditch this. I may need to kick this. I may need to give this up. I know there's a lot of attempts and a lot of ways where people want to try to, well, can I have Jesus end my stuff? And Jesus is saying, Mm-mm. call your husband. Jesus is pointing out, that's how good I am. That's how worthy I am. That's how deserving of your worship, your loyalty, your service I am. I'm, I'm so good that I have no rivals. I'm so good that I believe I deserve you and only you. God, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for you and for me, not the same way that human beings are jealous of other human beings. God is jealous for us because he made us and he knows what's best for us. He created us for himself. And when we're not living for him and for his glory, guess what? He can't say you were made for this. You were made for this. The only way in which he could ever say you were made for this is when he finds our hearts not divided, but united in worship of him. And he knows that this woman has been sold a bill of goods. He knows that this woman has been destroyed as a result of her sinful life. And not just the choices she made, but the things that have been done to her. And so he loves her. He's moved with compassion upon her. I I believe it's compassion that's moving him toward asking her, to call for her husbands. He says, go now and call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, but uh, I don't have any husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, uh, something tells me you're a prophet. I don't hear this every day. See, Jesus never exposes us for its own sake. That's important. I want you to understand that God never calls out our sin for its own sake. Yeah, God is trying to point out that there's something unhealthy about your life. You see, until you and I are healed at the soul level, we'll never be healed at the relationship level. Okay? Every issue of ours is a worship issue. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's going after the most crucial thing in her life at this moment. Maybe for you, it's something else. But in her case, he's going after the most crucial thing in her life because he knows that's what stands between him and her. And Jesus will, will leap over any wall that he's got to leap over. He will, he will destroy any lie that he's got to destroy. He will Come hell or high water, Jesus will do what he has to do in order to have you for himself. Jesus is moved with compassion. It's compassion that drove him not around Samaria, but towards Samaria, into Samaria, to have this encounter with this woman. In the same way, I believe, Jesus is prepared to risk his reputation with the world to have an encounter with you. To have an encounter with you. He could care less about what other people may think, what other people may tweet, what other people may share on their social media feed because of his time spent with you, only so long as he can have you. And Jesus right now is showing us the same way I am being this person to this woman, I'm prepared to be toward you. I don't care what other people think of my time spent with you. I'm prepared to have you. And here... He meets this woman and he tells her the truth. He doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't endorse it. He doesn't clap for it. He just simply out of love points it out. And she says to him, our fathers worshiped. Wait a second. How, how are we going to go from, from relationships to worship? <laughs> Wait a second. You can't do that. Is she switching the script? Maybe. Maybe not. But you know what's beautiful about this situation here at this well between this man and this woman, between this Jesus and this Samaritan woman? Jesus is a man. Jesus is single. Jesus is someone who is a virgin. Jesus is in an interesting location, Samaria, which is Greek for Vegas or um, <clears throat> Tijuana, okay? Um, this area was known for some things, all right? Does Jesus speak to her inappropriately? No. Does Jesus do anything with her in private inappropriately? No. Jesus is away from home? In fact, Jesus' boys, his band, his accountability group, they're gone. They've left him alone. 
And yet, Jesus doesn't seize the moment. He doesn't take advantage of this scene and this opportunity for himself. Rather, he loves her. He treats her as a daughter of God, as an image bearer of God. Where even though her reputation doesn't speak toward the way Jesus is treating her, he still chooses to treat her with dignity and honor. You know, the message I get, the big idea I get from that men as a man is um, I need the father's heart because I believe what contributes to why Jesus was able to do this as all, at all is the fact that Jesus has, Jesus has the father's heart. Men, we need the father's heart. Ladies, you need the father's heart. And you need to know that even if you don't have a father, you have a God who is your father. Men, even if you don't have a father, you have a God who is your father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He, he has the father's heart with this woman. And that's a beautiful thing. And I believe that's having an impact upon her, her life. And we're seeing this played out right before our very eyes. And so she says right here in this passage, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, you say that it's in Jerusalem. That's the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when it's going to be neither about this mountain or that mountain where we worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus goes after, he says, look, I get it. I understand that you're a passionate, this woman is a passionate woman, but it's not enough. Passion alone is not enough in worship, people. And there's nothing wrong with passion, but passion alone is not enough. She's very passionate, but what's the problem? The object of her worship isn't good. She's very passionate about the wrong thing. You and I could be very passionate about all the wrong things. And it's not so much our passion as it is the object of our worship that matters. And here, what do we see? That her passion is not the problem. Her idol is the problem. She made much of men in her life. She was a worshiper, but she was a worshiper of men. She was a worshiper of the attention, the approval, and the affirmation that she thought that she was going to get from men. And maybe there's someone out there like that, whether you're a woman or a man toward other women, that could be our, our danger. You see, we were made for God. We weren't made for people or for stuff. And that's important. We weren't made to worship created things. We were made to worship the creator who is blessed forever. And when we confuse the two, what we call that is an idol. Our passion is not our problem. Our idols are. Our substitutes, the things that we smuggle in, in place of who God wants to be toward us. And Jesus was prepared to go 
after that. Until my relationships, my relationship with Jesus is healthy, my relationship with other people will never be healthy. And Jesus loves her enough to point this out. You see, the word, one of the Greek words for worship really is to sacrifice. What are you and I sacrificing for? What are you sacrificing your time for? What are you sacrificing your energy for? Because that's what's going to let you and me know what the object of our worship is. I may claim to worship God, but when it comes down to it and I look at my life and where my energy goes, where my time goes, where my money goes, that is the best indicator as to what my worship ultimately is about. And Jesus knew it was about this, these men. He says, look, if you drink from this well, which means all these so-called husbands, you'll be thirsty again. None of them ever satisfied you, did they? But when you drink from my well, the water that I offer you, you'll never be thirsty again. It was Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2 and 13 who said, my people have committed two sins, two great evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Imagine just filling this thing up and carrying it only to realize a trail of water. As soon as you try to get filled up with alcohol, as soon as you try to get filled up with sex, as soon as you try to get filled up with relational intimacy, as soon as you try to get filled up with money, status, reputation, income, IQ, you name it, there's a trail that you're leaving behind you. As you were affirmed, you were rejected. As it came in, it went out. And Jesus says, you were not made for this. You were not made for these things. You were made for me. You were made for your creator. You were not made to draw. The moment you give Jesus's resume to your spouse is the moment that relationship of yours crumbles. The moment you put a cape on your spouse and expect them to be what only God can be is the moment that that relationship is ruined. And God says, through Jesus, and Jesus points to this, this out to this woman, that true sacrifice is to be given to God. To God. You see, worship is not just something that we turn on and off. It's not something we start and stop. It's a lifestyle. Worship is not merely part of what I do. Worship is what I always do. Some people worship their car. Some people worship their education. Some people worship their income. Some people worship their IQ. Some people worship their kids. Some people worship their family. Some people worship their grandkids. Some people worship their ministries. In any case, the question is, what? It's not that you worship. The question is, what do you worship? Who do you worship? How do you worship? And Jesus, in this encounter with this woman, is wanting to get to the heart of what explains why she is so broken and how the only way she's going to ever experience healing, true healing, is when she gets to the bottom of that. You see, we have negative relationships. We have unhealthy lifestyles. We have horrible track records and patterns 
of relationships that we enter in and out of. And we experience brokenness as a result of that. The only way that I or you or we are able to experience any sort of freedom, any sort of breakthrough in these situations is by becoming worshipers. It's not just worship that gets me into trouble. It's worship that gets me out of trouble. In this story, it's worship that got this woman into trouble. But what's the object of her worship? It was these men. It was the lifestyle that she chose. What's going to get her out of her situation? It's worship. But the object is no longer going to be these men. It's going to be the man, the God man. In the same way, you and I probably have, through worship, gotten ourselves in a whole lot of mess. And it was worship that got you into that trouble. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's horrible, toxic relationships. Or maybe you've chosen the wrong crowd. Maybe you've been looking for popular opinion or the approval of other people. And you live and you die by other people's opinions of you. Other people's acceptance of you. Other people's approval of you. And it's killing you. It's killing you. You're dying from the inside out. And you don't even know how to live. And like this woman, Jesus comes to you and he says, look, you drink from that kind of a well, you're going to be thirsty again and again and again. But if you drink from the living water that I offer you, you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus said in John 7, 38, the one who believes in me from his heart, the Bible says, will flow living water. You know what Jesus is commending to this woman? Oh, this is beautiful. He's commending to her the Holy Spirit. See, I'm a father of four, and I have three daughters myself, and I just cannot imagine allowing my, father, my daughters to be put into the hands of men who don't know how to treat them. It would just kill me. It would destroy me. I'm sorry, but when I look at a story like this, I got dad lenses. I see everything, in fact, in life through dad lenses. And I'm trying to approach this situation, and I'm trying to see what is the best help for this per person. I want to approach this from a father's heart. Jesus is trying to approach this woman from this father's heart. I remember I was in a situation at a party where here we are interacting with people. I was meeting people. I connected with some households and some families, and I'm talking with this parent about their child who's entering into teenage years. And, they, and uh, she says, I believe it's the mother who says to me, oh, pray for me because she is boy crazy right now. Hmm. I was listening and I'm like, the conversation kind of went on. It wasn't really something that we stopped to talk about at length, but I couldn't help but hold on to that thought. Like, wow. Um, the first thing that came to my mind was, I wonder where the father is. I know we get at this stage, but what, what do we mean by boy crazy? You see, when a young lady outside of her time longs to have a hand hold her, that's the time when dad should be holding her hand. When she longs to have a man cuddle with her, that's the moment when dad should be the one who's snuggling with her. When she longs for a man to to kiss her, that should be the moment that she recognizes it's dad's job to kiss me on the head. You see, 
fathers and men, as we assume our roles and play our part by providing that which is necessary to our daughters, that void, that hole ends up getting smaller and smaller to where it gets closed. To where, as Solomon says, do not awaken love before it's time. Our daughters can now begin to wait for the right time to begin to find that love. You see, when a, maybe there's somebody in tuning in who you're a young lady, you're a woman, you're an older woman, and you have a past and it's, it's haunting you. You're in a season of your life right now and it's killing you. And like this woman, maybe you're a man. And there are things that have happened in your past. There are things that have gone on that have scarred you and that have caused you to feel vulnerable. And there's an, there's an opening. There's a gaping hole. And it almost feels like you're prepared to allow anyone and anything to meet it. And what I want you to do is I want you to be reintroduced to the Father heart of God. I want you to know him again. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not a plan of salvation per se. It's a person. It's a relationship. Christianity is not this list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship with the living God who's prepared to be more than a creator God to you. He's prepared to be Abba, Father. That's why it's important for you to understand why Jesus wanted to commend this Holy Spirit to her. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, this is a reality that's both internal and eternal. He's a person. He lives within us. His presence and his power resides, not just once, but forever. Remember what he said, the one who drinks the living water that I offer, you'll never be thirsty again. Why? Because you'll have the Holy Spirit. You have one to meet those needs as soon as they arise. And Jesus wants to commend this need to her. Verse 25, she says there, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Mic drop, verse 28, 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Boom. Jesus says, hello. It's me. Voila. I'm here. I'm not just some, I'm not merely someone you're talking about. I'm the one that you're talking to. I'm not just someone to look for. I'm the person that you're with. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. You see, the way that this woman is able to not only encounter Christ, but come to obtain this salvation is the fact that she came to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Do you know Jesus as the Christ? As God who came and became a man, who lived a life perfectly, sinlessly, in our place, and who died on a brutal cross for our sins and rose again to assure us that he's conquered the grave? Do you, do you know this Jesus that this woman is encountering? Because Jesus not only wants to make himself known to her, he wants to make himself known to you and to me. 
Just like our bodies need exercise, our soul needs worship. Just like worship is not about a temple that we go to, but recognizing that we are the temple, Jesus wants to see it, us to see this truth. It's not so much about us going to God as it is the good news that God has come to us. God's not seeking worship. He's seeking worshipers. And I want you to be encouraged in the same way that this woman is encouraged. You see, the same way that she needed Jesus, you and I need Jesus. She's not only the Samaritan, you and I are the Samaritans. In order for us to appreciate this story, we've got to recognize that I'm that Samaritan. We're all the Samaritan women. We're all the Samaritan people. We're all those people who don't belong. We're all those people who have racy past. We're all those people who only by God's grace can be included in. And just like this woman was extended mercy, so you and I have been extended mercy. A couple of takeaways I want to leave with you. Number one, don't hand over Jesus' role to another human being. It's only going to crush them and disillusion you and me in the process. The next thing I want to point out is Jesus not only forgives sin, he lifts burdens. The only way this woman was able to ever go back to her town and tell of the good news of a man that told her everything that she had ever done and how he can save and he can forgive was the fact that she knew whatever her past may have looked like, whatever reputation she may have had that she was known previously for, Jesus has taken that burden and he's lifted it. He didn't only forgive her sins, he also lifted her burdens. Jesus wants to put a well, not just in one location, but in your soul. She had to physically go to a particular place to draw water. Jesus has come by his spirit in order to permanently reside within each and every one of you who've called upon his name for salvation. Jesus wants you to experience the presence and the power of this Holy Spirit. There are three ways in which you and I establish an identity. The first way is by what others have said about us or to us or done to us. This could be in your child upbringing, um, a nickname that you were given, an insult that you had heard about yourself. This could be something that was done to you, someone who abused you. This could be something pejorative. This could be something that could have happened early on in your childhood or later on in your adolescence. But in any case, it's something that is the, this identity is the result of what someone has said to you or done to you. That's the first way. The second way that you and I can establish or do establish our identities is not so much by what others have said or done to us. It's by what we've said or done to ourselves. This is the way we've, we've self-inflicted ourselves through negative words that we've lodged in our own minds. This is things that we've done to ourselves out of disregard for how God has made us and who we are in his sight. And in either one of those cases, it doesn't matter because 
Neither one of those leads to an identity that's healthy or good or right at all. There's a third way that you can establish an identity. And that third way is what Jesus has said to you and me, what Jesus has done for you and for me. And that's what I want to leave you with. You see, this woman is no longer defined by what others have said or done, or even what she has said or done to herself. Her life and her identity is now defined by what and who Jesus says of her and what Jesus has done for her. This is the salvation that he offers her. This is the healing that he offers her. You, like her, were made for this. And what is that? Not the worship of created things, the worship of the creator God who's come to us in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you today. Maybe right now you're thinking, man, I just feel guilty. I just feel shamed. I feel dirty. Jesus says, come with all of your experiences. And I want to not only forgive your sins, I want to lift your burden. I want to take away your shame. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he not only endured the cross, he despised the shame. Jesus takes away our our shame. He wants to make you whole again. He wants to enter. God's a relational God. Jesus didn't have this conversation from heaven with this woman. He, He didn't just come to the earth. He came to Samaria. He went as far as he needed to, even if it came at a risk to his reputation in order to offer this living water to her. Jesus is prepared to go as far as he needs to in your life and in my life, even if it comes at a risk to his reputation in order to have a relationship with you. But you've got to come on the same terms that she had to come. She had to ask. She had to know who he was. And she had to receive what he alone had to offer. I want to invite you right now, if you happen to be tuning in, and there may be the chance, the off chance, that you're someone who can't honestly say that you are a Christian, that if you were to die today, that you see yourself entering into God's heaven, that you, as you presently speak, have peace with God. If that's you, I want to invite you to come to Christ today. I want to encourage you to receive this living water, this eternal life that only comes from God's hands. You see, in the case of Nicodemus, the encouraging news is there's, there's no need too great that God can't meet. In the, in the case of this Samaritan woman, there's no past that's too far gone. There's no reputation. There's no sin. There's no track record that's too far gone that Jesus cannot address. So no matter who you are, you may be a religious figure, you may be very moral, very, very church going, or maybe you're someone like this woman who has a, a racy track record, who has a past that you just haven't been able to get beyond. Jesus invites you into relationship today. And it's very simple. It's very simple. You just need to recognize like this woman did who you are outside of him. And you need to realize that Jesus alone is the answer. And that by turning away from that past of yours and embracing him through faith alone, you have eternal life. And if that's a step that you're prepared to make, if this is a decision that you're prepared to make, I'm prepared to pray together with you. Will you pray together with me? Let's pray. You can pray after me. Father,
I thank you that I can now acknowledge you as a father. God, I pray, asking you forgiveness for the fact that I am a sinner. I recognize now more than ever that apart from your son and what he's done for me, I know that I deserve separation forever apart from you, that I don't belong and deserve to have a relationship with you. But God, I also recognize that you chose to allow your mercy to triumph over your judgment. And therefore, you have sent your son whose name is Jesus so that he can live a life that I failed to live, so that he can die a death that my sins deserve to die, so that he may three days later rise again, assuring my heart that if I put my trust in him and nothing else and no one else, I know that in the same way he defeated death, I can overcome death. God, I repent of my sins. I turn away from my life that doesn't speak well of you. And I turn toward you in faith. God, I ask you right now, will you forgive me of all of my sins? I receive the eternal life that comes from you. I receive Jesus as the answer to my problem. I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. God, I thank you. I thank you for eternal life. Father, I, as I close right now, I pray for all who are tuning in. Lord, would you be with us? May our past not define us. May our identity be shaped and built upon who you say we are and all that you've done for us and not what has gone on in our past. Lord, help us to move beyond whatever has been done to us or whatever we've done to ourselves. Lord, I pray, build our lives back up again. Give us hope. In the same way you gave this Samaritan woman a chance to live again, I pray that you give us a chance to live again. May we not live in our rear view, but may we live through our windshield. God, I thank you for the hope that you give every child of God and every believer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your grace. And as we go forward into our week, give us a confidence and give us an encouragement to want to live for you all over again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you.